I've been preaching long enough now to know um, that some sermon topics are more popular than others. Uh, I'm not sure what the most popular subject is, but I know that this subject that we're going to talk about today is not on that short list. In fact, it's probably on the other end of the spectrum. This may be the most unpopular topic that I preach on. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) The topic is prayer. And there you go. Your body's still here, but where did your mind uh, just go? Unless you're among those, those minority of people who really love prayer and who love to learn more about prayer, I'm afraid that you might have just checked out. Why? Well, I may be wrong, but it seems to me that most people, even most Christians of all ages, don't really believe that prayer makes a real difference in everyday life. Because we've tried it. Some of us a few times, some of us a few thousand times. And even though it feels taboo to say it out loud, and even though it may conflict with what we believe about God and with what, what we know the Bible teaches, it just doesn't seem to work for us. Whether we pray or don't pray doesn't have that much of an effect. It's like we're in this closed system. And, you know, someday we're going to get out of it and be with God. But in the meantime, here we are, and he's way off there, and he's not really involved. There's not really a connection. And so we're kind of on our own down here. And so when I say I'm going to talk about prayer, you think Oh, he's going to say what I've heard before. He's going to quote the same passages that I've heard before, but if I give it another go, I'm going to get the same results. Sorry, I'm out. If I just described you, let me ask you this. Do you think that prayerlessness is a new problem, a recent problem? You think it's something that, you know, is kind of a 21st century problem? Uh, Well, it's not. In fact, the very first generation of Christians, those who were the first to hear from Jesus' apostles what he taught about prayer were more like us than you can imagine. For many of them, prayer was not their first instinct. It was their last resort. As I've mentioned before, James is the oldest book in the New Testament. It was most likely written in the mid to late 40s. So this was just like 15 years or so after Jesus uh, went back to heaven. And one of the biggest problems that James addressed was the reluctance of Christians to pray about what they needed the most. Three times in this short book, He urges them to do what for some reason just doesn't come naturally to them. First in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now stop there. Do you ever lack wisdom? Do you ever come to a fork in the road and not know which way to go? Do you ever rack your brain trying to figure out what's the right solution to this very complex problem? Did you ever wonder, what's the best strategy to accomplish something that's really, really important to me? When that happens, who do you go to for advice? James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, 
who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Wow, that's an amazing promise. But apparently, Christians in the first century at least thought that they could get better advice from merely human sources. Imagine that. And then in chapter 4, James talks about this gap that exists between what we have and what we want and all of the sinful ways we try to close that gap. And in the middle of verse 2, he gets to the crux of the problem. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. You do everything except pray. Stop trying to grab what you want out of other people's hands and just ask God for it. For some reason, that solution seemed utterly impractical to these people, despite what Jesus had taught them about the open-handedness of God. And then in chapter 5, James has to remind his readers to do what should be instinctive to them when they were in over their heads. He says in verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13, is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. And then he gets very specific in verse 14. If is any among you sick, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. I just find it amazing that even in the first century, people who knew all about the miraculous healings of Jesus and the supernatural power he gave his followers to heal physical illness, they still relied more on doctors than on God when they got sick. I mean, I can kind of understand it these days, but in the first century they did that? You see, prayerlessness has always been a problem for God's people. For, for the same reason we struggle with it, because it just doesn't seem to work. The question is, why not? Who is to blame for the impotence of our prayers? Are God's promises unreliable? Or is our approach deficient? James would say, well, the problem's not up there. It's down here. The way you pray is so lame, no wonder you've given up. And to get us back on the right track, he reminds us of the conditions that must be met if we want our prayers to be answered in the way that Jesus promised God would answer them. There are four different ingredients of effective prayer that James mentions in this letter. Now, please understand, this is not an equation or a formula because prayer is not math or science. Prayer is communication with a person who expects us to approach him in a way that is appropriate to who he is. And my guess is that you probably meet some of these conditions, but maybe not all of them. So I'm not really asking you today to try to get better at prayer in four different ways. I think it would be better for you just to try to identify the one way that you most need to grow in order to get the kind of results that will encourage you to pray more, not less. So let's dig in. Chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, 
who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, I just read that for the second time, and so it's easy for us to kind of skim past it in our mind, but let's make sure that we're absorbing what James just said about God. He said to us, God is not like the Wizard of Oz. He's not stingy. He's not insulting. He doesn't say, you dare come to me you clinking, clanking, clattering collection of collisionous junk, you billowing bale of bovine fodder. No, no, he is the giver of every good and perfect gift, verse 17 of chapter 1 says. He loves to give good gifts to those who ask him, Jesus said in Matthew 7. God could not be more willing to give us wisdom or whatever it is that we need. But, verse 6 says, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. There's condition number one, faith. Write that down. And, and when you do, don't just say, well, I've heard that word a billion times before. I know what it means. James is gonna, he's telling us here uh, what it means. It means to believe and not doubt doubt. You have to believe that God can and will give you what you're asking for, unless he has a better reason for saying no than for saying yes. And listen to me now, you must not have even the smallest fraction of doubt because, James says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Here's the... Convicting verse, verse 7, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. James has zero tolerance for what seems to me to be an almost universal susceptibility. I mean, I would probably say something like, we all struggle with doubt, but do your best to minimize it. To that, James would say, no. It's not until all doubt is gone that you should expect to receive anything from the Lord. And that would be perfectly consistent with what Jesus said in Mark 11. He said, truly, I I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. As unrealistic as it sounds to us, God expects us to expect Him to do what we are asking Him to do. If doubt creeps in, power seeps out. I had a friend in graduate school uh, by the name of Les Cantrell, and um, he sticks out in my mind because um, I I remember this one conversation that we had one day in the hallway of our dormitory. I was just walking down the hall, and there's Les. He's got a cup of coffee in his hand, and he says, Greg, let me tell you about something that happened to me today. He had just come back from uh, an event that was at at a park. It was an outdoor event, and he was there setting this up with a non Christian friend of his. Um, he was, they were at this gazebo, and, but there were going to be more people there, and it was an outdoor thing that they were doing, and it started to rain, um, not just sprinkle, but rain hard. 
And for whatever reason, Les was convinced that God wanted that event to go on. And he felt like God really wanted to reveal himself to his friend by stopping the rain. (laughs) And so, so Les prayed out loud. He said, God, I pray that when I step out from under this gazebo, the rain will stop. And then he stepped out. And the rain stopped. Uh, uh, He said to me with his eyes wide, he said, I I, I kid you not, I didn't even get wet. And then he took a big gulp of coffee and he said, isn't that great? I, I, I thought to myself, why doesn't God answer my prayers like that? And then I realized why. It's because, you know, I just don't expect him to like Les did. It's when we believe and do not doubt that God works most dramatically. And so I'm asking the question like, well, how do I get better at this? How do I eradicate doubt in my heart? I actually did a whole message on this uh, a few years ago. If you want me to, I'll send it to you. But let me just give you a couple of bullet points. First, ask God for help. This is not an uncommon problem. Doubt. There's a story in Mark 9 where the desperate father of a boy who has epileptic seizures is asking Jesus for help. In fact, his boy is rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth, and and, and he says frantically to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. And then he realized that he, he really didn't. And so he said, help my unbelief. What a great prayer that is. When you realize that doubt is creeping in, ask God to help you overcome it. Say, I, I can't do this on my own. Take the doubt away. Give me the gift of doubt-free faith. And, and second, um, I, I said in that message, change your focus. Um, In other words, anchor your thoughts on the reliability of God's promise rather than the enormity of your problem. It's hard to do, but there's an example given to us in the Bible of somebody who did that. It was Abraham, this old, old man who had an old, old wife, post-menopausal. God promised them that, that he would give them more offspring. It's a childless couple. He promised them, I'll give you more offspring than the stars that you can count in the sky. And Genesis 15 says that Abraham believed the Lord. And Romans 4 says that he did so against all hope. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. So he didn't deny reality. He didn't bury his head in the sand. He looked in the mirror and said, Woo! Yet, look at this, verse 20, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Notice where his focus was. Not on what he could see, but on what God had said. If you want to know what's possible, don't look at your circumstances. Look at Scripture. Jesus said that God's Word is truth. 
It is more true than anything you feel. It is more true than anything you see. The more deeply you believe that, the more powerfully you will pray. Now, um, turn over to chapter 4. I want us to take another look at a verse that I already mentioned earlier because there's a second lesson that the people James was writing to needed to learn, and I think we do too. Um, It's in verse 1 that he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. He's just talking about some of the ugly ways that we try to get what we want because we assume that God has checked out and we're on our own. But he hasn't checked out. He's eager to give generously to all without finding fault. So the problem is in the last part of verse 2 where James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. He says, you take matters into your own hands. You need to stop grabbing and start asking. You need to forget your manners and barge right into the throne room of God. This is the principle of boldness that Jesus taught so memorably in Luke 11. His disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. And so Jesus said, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your, what? What does the passage say? Because of your shameless audacity. One paraphrase says, because of your chutzpah. He will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. This is most likely the teaching that James was thinking of when he said you do not have because you do not ask God. We think, well, he'll be offended by my boldness. Oh no. Oh, no, God is delighted with it. I used to work with a guy who had no qualms about asking God for anything. His name was Steve, and um, one day I was having a conversation with him about furniture. I told him about some expensive furniture that we had just purchased for our home, and he said, well, that's interesting because um, I just got some furniture recently as well. But rather than buying it, My wife and I agreed to pray and ask God for it. He said, we we set a date on the calendar, and we agreed that we would pray up until that date, and if God didn't answer, then we'd go out and buy the furniture. And he said, the day before that day, somebody called me randomly on the phone and asked me if I needed furniture. And uh, I said, what kind of furniture have you got? And then he described all of the furniture that I needed for my home, exactly what we were going to buy. He just smiled and said, isn't God great? And I said, well, he sure is. But what I was thinking was, why does God's goodness cost me more than it costs you? 
And the answer was because he had the gall to ask God for something that I assumed people have to buy. See, we can't be too bold in approaching a God who is just waiting for us to ask. This God who is inviting us to seek, waiting for us to knock. But, but let me add this caveat. God is not only generous, he's also holy. He does not indiscriminately dispense whatever we ask for regardless of why we are asking. See, some of the Christians to whom James was writing thought of prayer as just another scheme to get what they coveted. So maybe if they prayed with faith and with boldness, he would overlook their carnal motives. No such luck. Verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, when it comes to prayer, righteousness matters. Prayer is a communication channel between God and godly people. It's not a jackhammer that we can use to punch a hole in heaven whenever we want God to subsidize our selfishness or our sin. So many different passages that teach the same principle. Let me show you some of them. Proverbs 15 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Isaiah 1, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Isaiah 59, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And here is the same principle stated positively. 1 John 3, we receive from God anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. And we think, well, okay, I'm a pretty righteous person. Certainly compared to other people that I know. But think about it. Think about how materialistic um, this, this world is that we live in, this, this me first, anything goes, immoral society. You cannot live day by day in a, in a culture like this. You can't live in it without getting dirty unless you're very careful. We say, well, I'm less unholy than others. But God says that His eyes range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. See, He's looking for wholehearted, relentless, uncompromising pursuit of righteousness. And when we settle for less, our prayer life suffers. God stops answering our prayers, and so we stop praying, blaming Him for its ineffectiveness when the real problem is the buildup of filth on our own soul. So how do we clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable to God? Well, we're going to find out in chapter 5, and I'm just going to tell you that it's not as hard as you might think. Turn over to chapter 5. Um, this is such good stuff on prayer here. 
really a, a lot of repetition of what James already taught us about prayer in chapters 1 and 4. And you have to remember, this is James' style. Just when we think he's finished talking about a subject, he hits it again for emphasis. And I'm so glad that he does that when it comes to prayer because he applies the principles of faith and boldness and righteousness to something that matters very much to all of us, and that is our health. Verse 14, is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I know when we read that, some of us think, well, that just sounds so superstitious. What's with the oil? The Bible doesn't fully satisfy our curiosity. Um, all we know is that miraculous healing was a big part of Jesus' ministry and that he sent his apostles out to heal the sick just like he did. And Mark 6 says that they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And their healing ministry continued even after Jesus went back to heaven. And then God gave others, non-apostles, the spiritual gift of healing. And here, James is saying that the elders of the church, assuming they're righteous leaders, have access to that same supernatural power through prayer. James is saying that there are people at White Pine Community Church, ordinary people, with names like Greg and Joe and Bill and Chris and Phil and Doug, guys like that, they actually have access to the power that it takes to have somebody healed supernaturally. And we say, well, I don't understand these mechanics. Oil, anointing, all that kind of stuff. We don't have to understand the mechanics in order to know what God wants us to do when we are sick. He wants us to boldly ask righteous people to pray in faith for our healing. Wouldn't it be tragic if the only reason you're still sick is because you haven't asked for that kind of help? Actually, when I was writing that sentence that I just spoke to you, in my notes yesterday on my computer, I had my Bible right next to the computer and I had it open to Second Chronicles 16. I don't ordinarily read out of Second Chronicles, but I was there because that's where I find the verse that says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. It's Second Chronicles 16.9. Those words were spoken to a king by the name of Asa whose heart at that moment was not fully committed to the Lord. And I remembered this thing about Asa. Something happened to him late in his life. And so I just kept reading down that column. And three verses later, the scripture says, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Do you think we ever make the same mistake? Now, I'm so thankful to God for doctors. I am grateful for modern medicine. But God's not limited to that. Sometimes He uses doctors to heal us, and sometimes He heals us 
without doctors. Sometimes doctors try and can't do it, and then God does it. I mean, look at this promise in verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. It's an astounding promise. The Lord will raise them up. Notice James is repeating the importance of faith. The elders, when they pray, they must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is double-minded and unstable and should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Maybe you've heard it said before that the reason why somebody doesn't get healed is because they don't have enough faith. You ever heard that before? Well, it would be more accurate to say that the reason why some people are not healed is because those who are told to pray for them don't have enough faith. That's what James says in this passage. I love this story in the Gospels where these four guys all grab one corner of their friend, they have a a friend who was paralyzed, so they each grabbed a corner of his mat so they could transport him to where Jesus was because they knew that Jesus was a healer. And so they they take him to this house where they heard Jesus was, and there's a huge crowd there. I mean, the the house is full. There are layers of people all around the house, and they can't get through. And so what do they do? They go around to the backside, and they hoist their friend up onto the roof, and then they kind of guess where Jesus is on the inside, and they start digging a hole through the roof. I would have loved to see that from the inside. Jesus is there. Dust starts you know, trickling down, and pretty soon tiles start falling from the ceiling, and before you know it, there's a skylight in the roof. And this guy's being lowered down on this blanket, and he's just dropped right down. People are helping at the bottom until he's laying there on the ground in front of Jesus, and Jesus looks up, and he sees these four heads, dark, silhouetted by the sun. And when he saw their faith, the Scripture says, when he saw their faith, not the faith of the paralyzed man, but the faith of his friends, he forgave that guy's sins and then healed him. One of the things I like about that story is that it puts responsibility on the healthy to pray for the sick because sometimes sick people are just too weak or too discouraged or too exhausted to pray in faith for themselves. And that's why God says, you, you guys do it. You, you healthy ones, you do it. But there's something else that, that struck me from that story in the Gospels that I've never really thought about before, at least not from the perspective that this passage in James gives us. The first thing that Jesus did in response to the faith of those four guys was not to heal their friend, but to forgive his sins. I always thought that the only reason Jesus did that was to demonstrate to the religious leaders who were there that he was God and that he had the authority to forgive sins. But what if there was sin in that paralyzed man's life that was actually a hindrance to his healing? Now let me be really, really clear about this. Sickness is not always due to sin. Jesus made that very clear in John 9. But 1 Corinthians 11 says that sometimes sickness is due to sin. So when we are sick, we should never be too quick to dismiss the possibility that sin is the cause. We should examine ourselves. 
And if we find any trace of sin, we should confess it to the Lord. Actually, verse 16 says that we should confess our sins to each other. We shouldn't just, you know, you know silently say, Lord, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. We should say out loud, I confess to God and I confess to you, my friends, that I have sinned against God in this way. And when we do that, love this, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's not that we have to go through some kind of a lengthy, grueling self-improvement plan. We just have to admit the truth. We have to repent. That's a word that's kind of scary to us, but it's just a word that means to turn around. I've been going this way, Lord, doing some stuff I know you don't want me to do. I'm sorry. I know that's just pleasing to you. Please help me to be different. Pivot. The pivot, that's repentance. And, and that's, all that, that's all that it takes. That's what changes us from being unrighteous to righteous and righteousness is powerful when it comes to prayer. Verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, look at it carefully. Does James say so that you might be healed? Does he say, so that you will be healed unless it's God's will not to heal you? No. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't have any of those kind of disclaimers there. And is that, is that because it's, it's never God's will to say no? No. Sometimes he does say no. The Apostle Paul pleaded with God to remove his thorn in the flesh. I mean, he'd healed all kinds of people. God had used Paul to heal tons of people. And now Paul prays for healing, and God says, no, I want to make my power known through your weakness. So that's always a possibility. God may have a reason for saying no. So why doesn't James say that? Well, I think it's because he just doesn't want us to go there too quickly. See, we tend to think that divine healing is the exception rather than the rule. It's just easier to think that way because it kind of fits with our experience. And, and James says, no, 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 no. I want you to expect God to say yes. Of course we should acknowledge that it may not be his will to heal us, but more likely it is his will to do that. And so we should pray, thank you, God, that you will heal my friend unless you have a better plan. And I can't imagine a better plan, so I'm expecting you to do it. I remember once many years ago at a church in another state where I was an elder. I was a young elder. I, was the, I think I was the youngest elder in, in that church. And we were in a room one time uh, praying together as elders. And a couple came to, into that room with their infant son to ask us to pray for him. Because they'd been to the doctor and they'd found that their son had a hole in his heart. And they were worried sick. And so all they knew to do was what the Scripture tells them to do. They brought their son to those of us who were elders. And so we agreed to pray for them, for their, for their, for their child. And as I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm not the first to pray because I wanted to defer to the older guys that were there, I was listening and I was thinking, goodness gracious, these guys, 
they're, they're not praying in faith. They're giving all kinds of disclaimers when they're praying. They're praying in such a way that the parents won't be too disappointed when God says no. And it was just building up in me. And so finally when it came around to me, um, I, don't know whether, I don't know whether this was just my youth or there was some surge of faith in me, but I just thanked God that he was going to heal this baby. And I didn't offer any disclaimers. And it was a week or two later that this couple tracked me down in church. They had their baby there with them and they said, thank you so much for praying for our son. We brought him back to the doctors. They did the tests and they can't find a hole in his heart. And it didn't surprise me because, you know, I believe that God was going to do that because that's what James said would happen. He says in the last part of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But that's a verse that would intimidate me if not for the fact that 1 John 1.9 tells me that I'm cleansed from unrighteousness uh, when I confess my sins. And what's really important about verse 16 is that it broadens the idea. See, we, it's, he, first he says, just you, know, you can go to the, the elders and ask them to pray. But now he's saying that the prayer of any righteous person is powerful and effective. I think the reason why James mentioned the elders is just because they tend to be righteous people. But so is anyone else who's quick to confess their sins and who prays with doubt-free faith. I like the way the message paraphrases this verse. The prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. And then James gives us an example of someone who prayed like God wants us to. Verse 17, Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, was a human being even as we are. He didn't have some kind of unusual access to God. All he had was the same thing we have, which is the channel of prayer. And he prayed earnestly, the text says, earnestly. The the English Standard Version says that he prayed fervently. The message says that he prayed hard, that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. That story is told in 1 Kings 17, and the drought that Elijah prayed for was disciplinary. It was how he was asking God to get an evil king's attention. And verse 18, again, three and a half years later, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Actually, that's when it seems as if Elijah prayed the hardest. Because the scripture says that he he bent down to the ground and he put his face between his knees and he prayed seven times before a little cloud appeared on the horizon. And then it became the storm that, that he was praying for. So in that case, it wasn't a quick and easy prayer of faith. Now, sometimes it is. Sometimes God answers our prayer so quickly that it takes our breath away. But there are other times when we pray boldly in faith with a clean conscience, and nothing happens. And that's when we have to add to the mix what I would call intensity. We have to pray longer and harder than we thought we would. In Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples that they should always pray and not give up. In fact, he said, when our prayers are not answered immediately, crying out to God day and night is how we demonstrate our faith. In Acts 12, the apostle Peter was miraculously released uh, from prison 
while the church was earnestly praying to God for him. In Colossians 4, Paul talks about a man by the name of Epaphras, and he says to his readers, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. Jesus himself modeled intensity in prayer. Hebrews 5 says that he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Luke says that he prayed earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I think that one of the reasons why prayer seems to be so ineffective is simply because we give up too quickly. Now, it's not that we can twist God's arm by praying long and hard. It's just that that's what people of faith naturally do when God has not yet fulfilled His promise to answer their prayers. They don't resign themselves to failure. They don't say, there's something wrong with me, or worse, there's something wrong with God, they say, hey, God, what's up? I know you're listening. You told me to come to you. You said that you're eager to give good gifts. You said that the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You promised to respond to my faith, so I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep asking. I am going to keep seeking. I am going to keep knocking. I'm going to cry out to you day and night until you either give me what I want or tell me to stop asking. That's how James teaches us to pray. And until that's how we pray, with faith, with boldness, with righteousness, and with intensity, until we pray like that, we should not conclude that prayer doesn't work, but rather that we have work to do. So, Father, teach us how to pray. Help our unbelief. Free us from timidity. Purify us with the blood of Jesus. And give us a stubborn determination to experience in real life what you have taught us about the power of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.